0: Initially. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, you have until the end of the year, you have until 2024 to get some merch if that is up your alley. You can actually get some black hoodies. Uh, We got some alternate logos out there as well some beanies, some three quarter sleeve baseball tees. I think it looks pretty slick. And I tried to keep the prices low. You know, get the books, dive manual, hunt manual. Dive manual will uh, especially be relevant to this conversation today. I say conversation because it still kind of feels like that, but it's just a solo episode. This is going to be a unique episode, though. I'm excited. I know exactly what I want to say, but it's going to be very interesting to see it said and all finished. I haven't heard many people touch on these topics, and in fact, I think there is a lot of uh hesitance out there to get into this kind of subject matter. We're talking about the yin and the yang, the anima, and animus um that is primarily Jungian terminology, Carl Jung, you know famous for analytic psychology. If you've listened to this show, you're well familiar um uh, but as most of you know, Jung was just the one to synthesize these esoteric alchemical motifs into psychological context. So Jung was studying, you know, our alchemical forefathers and mothers. And this is going to get a little bit into, you know, this is going to be a very inclusive conversation, but we're going to deal with the, the divine masculine and feminine. Again, you could equate to the yin and yang if those, um, if uh, you don't like the genderification of that. I'm trying to think of anything else, uh, announcements before I really dive into this. I don't think so, though. I don't think so. You know, I guess the only other thing is uh, I do have a YouTube page now. It's just sort of a back burner thing. Uh, I've just uploaded some back episodes. I'm not really doing anything crazy on it yet. But you could go subscribe to that if you want. Uh, that will be something that I build more in the future. I plan on, there's definitely no dates yet, but I plan on eventually doing some live action. And if you're a fan of Tippy Patson and the League of Extraordinary Gents, you can find video versions of these quote-unquote commercials that you hear, uh, all these strange ads, So uh, and get a little bit of a uh, little visual humor I guess, with the uh just to add to the insanity, so there's that now, talking about the anima and animus, I guess to rip it off like a band aid, the only thing I think um anybody might push back on this episode for would be I think that given the broadest considerations of sexuality, gender, if we and by the way, if you've listened to these episodes, if you listen to this show, and you've heard me get into this spiel before, I promise it's not going to be the same thing over. Um, I try to look at this like layers of the onion, so we'll get into more and more. Even if you've heard me talk about this genderification before, so anyway, as I was saying, we're looking at esoteric aspects of nature. You know, the positive and negative. Uh, you could look at these as the proton and electron. There's many different manifestations, the trees of life and death, the union of opposites. And these are manifest in things like the, the poles of the planet um, and things like the genders. Now, I don't think the genders are end-all be-all. I'm very libertarian in this sense. I want to live and let live. And I I uh, I respect everyone's personal inclinations as long as you leave the kids out of it right but the people i don't think there's that many people out there but there are some extremists that that still staunchly argue that the genders are just a social construct and those are the people i'm gonna lose here um i don't i just don't i i don't i don't understand i don't get it i get that there are social constructs built around these things but how how are we explaining away the biology and i also understand that the biology isn't an end all be all but that's the starting point how are we getting rid of the starting point i just i've never understood that you could give me all the philosophizing and i'm with you except how are we getting rid of the starting point we could venture out into whatever territory you want so i i i don't get that part even though you know there could be uh, as broad of a spectrum as you want here, and I also don't understand why um, there is such a a hesitance to even use words like masculine and feminine anymore, like it's outdated. That seems um, that seems wild to me. I get that we want to broaden our horizons here, but those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it so we can't just edit history you know, people editing charlie and the chocolate factory uh you know, it, that shit is getting crazy for me so that's as political as i will get um i think that was pretty devoid of hate um if you disagree with me you i i think you could call me ignorant at worst but i really don't have any animosity here i i really want to live and let live and um the reason I'm talking about this stuff is not even to be political. It's because I love uh, esoteric philosophy and alchemy. And here's the big thing here. These esoteric forces of nature, the union of opposites, is something that is necessary to every single person, whether you're, you're queer or trans or asexual or pansexual. The yin and the yang are a union of opposites You can even look at it because this is a genuine facet of it as the interaction, the relationship between the conscious and unconscious mind. Another basic aspect of this is our adaptation to the diurnal cycle of the earth, the day and night. Our brains have adapted around that cycle and have, uh, and our adaptation around. Just the process of living in a, on a planet that provides day and night as it does has literally provided us with the, the split dichotomy of the conscious and unconscious mind. Evolutionary psychology shows us this. So this shit goes a lot, a lot deeper than sex politics or, or culture wars. A oh, really fascinating! What a lot of this conversation is going to be about from here is people's engagement with their anima, and there's going to be some uh, some some questions that I can't answer in here. And I'm excited to get into this because this is simply just not a conversation you could have in real life, in regular life. I dare you to try and broach this subject and to get into it with a cogent outcome. So, you know, not to toot my own horn, but this is what podcasting is for. I think, you know, it's not going to be for everybody, this topic, but like I said, I I don't, I don't know how we could have, how we could even broach this subject anywhere else. And I, I think that's kind of cool. I'm a little excited about that. And so whoever I've lost uh, so far in the conversation, um, you know, now we've, sort of ripped that off like a band-aid. We've gotten that out of the way and we can just have a a conversation about philosophy. And as a sort of a palate cleanser, I wanted to read, I think this is the perfect time to have remembered this. I've been meaning to read this on the podcast for months now. This is a poem by Chief Tecumseh, who was a Shawnee leader that lived from 1768 to 1813. He was an impressive orator and a spokesman for his people um, against The U.S. expansion into native land. And the poem goes as such So live your life that the fear of death can never enter your heart. Trouble no one about their religion. Respect others in their view and demand that they respect yours. Love your life, perfect your life, beautify all things in your life. Seek to make your life long and its purpose in service of your people. Prepare a noble death song for the day when you go over the great divide. Always give a word or a sign of salute when meeting or passing a friend, even a stranger when in a lonely place. Show respect to all people and grovel to none. When you arise in the morning, give thanks for the food and for the joy of living. If you see no reason for giving thanks, the fault lies only in yourself. Abuse no one and no thing, for abuse turns the wise ones to fools and robs the spirit of its vision. When it comes your time to die, be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death, so that when their time comes, they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. And that's really what this show is all about. Salute to uh, Tecumseh. Anima and Animus, the divine masculine and feminine beyond the, the you know, great mother-father archetypes, the esoteric aspects of the cosmos that manifest themselves in certain ways that we can see sort of certain on the nose sort of ways we have the anima and animus now in this um, classical western particularly jungian sense the anima is not it gets more specific than just masculine and feminine the anima being the feminine represents the soul of the of the human being and the animus you know, the yang represents the the spirit of the human being and is masculine. A lot of people use soul and spirit interchangeably. They are not interchangeable. The soul is, let's say, the nuclear reactor itself, and the spirit is the radiation. Spirit is the the emanation of the soul. The soul is the source point. Um, a, a lot of esoteric definitions will ascribe masculinity with action and femininity with nurturing, nurturement, whatever nurture. <laughs> so there's people like Jung. Well, I also have in the mix here Dante Alighieri, who wrote the Divine Comedy, um, Philip K. Dick, and Goethe or Gautier. You know, there's many ways to pronounce it as we've gone over. Uh, these four names have recurring patterns of what you might call a muse in their lives, but it's not specifically that. I can assure you that the uh, the concept of a muse, whatever direction it's going in, you know, it could be the same sex, you know, female to male, male to female, it could go in any way, but someone being romantically inspired by someone else artistically, and, and, and also in heartbreak, is something that's pretty timeless, that's never going to go away. And that, that's what we're looking at here. Not the, the physical person that catalyzes the inspiration, but the inspiration itself and some of the psychological, even magical experiments that come out of that. Because what the muse is, what a romantic partner is, is some sort of reflection of yourself, not in a solipsistic, egotistical way. It is someone that uh, that, while maintaining their own identity, something that you value, you know, uh you see you see them for who they are. On top of that, they allow you by the comforts of of your relationship um an authenticity in the relationship and in the moments of the relationship to be transparent and it's not like in a lie truth sort of way but a a psychological transparency of uncovering things about yourself that you maybe didn't know or you didn't know as well you're defining more aspects of yourself it's character development right that character development process is a lot, is essentially what we're looking at here today. And so for me, we're going to be talking about this in the best way I know how. And it's from my own experiences, but I'm not going to get into a lot of my own experiences here, um, story form wise. I will talk about the semantics of them a little bit, but I'm going to get into the, a little bit of the stories of these four gentlemen here because they actually went through the labor of documenting this esoteric philosophical psychological process of exploring their anima and the the reflection process of relation uh, uh, of genuine love and so this is going to be men being inspired by women here But the and and I apologize that I can't be more, um, not like inclusive, but that I don't have enough life experience to be able to include more people, more demographics in here. But this is a very esoteric topic, and rest assured that while the dynamics might change a little bit, just a little bit, the semantics, I mean. This process is entirely the same for everyone. There's the again the union of opposites, and whatever your starting point is, is going to dictate whatever that opposite point is. We don't all have the same starting points. We don't all have the same trajectories, and so for a a traditional man, so much of your spiritual journey will be defined by getting in touch with that feminine energy understanding the deeper mechanisms of your quote-unquote soul and for a woman a lot of your spiritual path will be getting in touch with you might have a much richer emotional life and you might want to put forth you might want to um you might feel inclined to understand how to convey that better to people and that's not to say that these are mutually exclusive everyone's going to go through these things but what i'm saying is there are certain basic tendencies and you know if you're something like queer or anything else um you're going to have a different starting point these things might vary a little bit but the 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 ratios might be different. I guess that's the best way to put it. I got some quotes from Jung himself here that we'll get into. You can find these in the show notes. I'll link everything that that I'm drawing from here. Anima and animus manifest themselves most typically in personified form as figures in dreams and fantasies or in the irrationalities of a man's feeling and a woman's thinking. Again, not exclusively, but generally. As regulators of behavior, they are two of the most influential archetypes. Every man carries within within him the eternal image of woman, not the image of this or that particular woman, but a definitive feminine image. This image is fundamentally unconscious a hereditary factor of primordial origin engraved in the living organic system of the man, an imprint or archetype of all the ancestral experiences of the female, a deposit, as it were, of all the impressions ever made by woman. Since this image is unconscious, it is always unconsciously projected upon the person of the beloved, and it is one of the chief reasons for a passionate attraction or aversion. So he's drawing heavily on a collective consciousness idea here you could debate some of these i'm not saying that all of this is stone cold fact this is psychological philosophy drawing from you know old alchemical tradition in its primary unconscious form uh the animus is a compound of spontaneous opinions which exercise a powerful influence on the woman's emotional life while the anima is similarly compounded of feelings which thereafter influence or distort the man's understanding. Consequently, the animus likes to project itself upon intellectuals, uh, including tenors, artists, sporting, celebrities, etc. The anima has a predilection for everything that is unconscious, dark, equivocal. No man can converse with an animus for five minutes without becoming the victim of his own anima. and. Anyone who still had enough sense of humor to listen objectively to the ensuing dialogue would be staggered by the vast number of commonplaces, um, misapplied truisms, cliches from newspapers and novels, shop-soiled platitudes of every description, interspersed with vulgar abuse and brain-splitting lack of logic. Wow. Um, It is a dialogue which, irrespective of its participants, is repeated millions and millions of times in all languages of the world and always remains essentially the same. And as I'm reading it, that could sound a little misogynistic almost uh, out of context, but what we are looking at and we'll get into more uh, here soon is the idea that there are shadow aspects to the anima and the animus. Uh, we'll at least touch on that, but that in and of itself is sort of like a next step topic, um, and part of the alchemical process, the union of opposites, is getting to the heart of these things and separating your own traumas and neurosis from their projection. It's 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 like a like a, a an unsound a static communication on your end, and you're trying to to clear it out. Um, some more quotes here. The natural function of the animus as well as the anima is to remain in place between individual consciousness and the collective unconscious. Exactly as the persona, you know, our everyday mask, so to speak, is a sort of stratum between the ego consciousness and uh, the objects of the external world. The animus and the anima should function as a bridge or a door leading to the images of the collective unconscious, as the persona should be a sort of bridge into the world right so they are not the end all be all and i think you know these are very esoteric concepts this isn't something that you understand fully in just one podcast episode this is something that people like jung have spent their whole lives analyzing and considering so i'm just trying to broach the subject here and as i said sorry to beat a dead horse but yin and yang can be applied uh, with you know respectively with anima and animus and yeah so we'll leave it at that we'll get into a quick commercial break and then we will talk more now that we've gotten some mechanics out of the way we're going to talk more about some of the individual experiences of people like young uh, Dante uh, P.K.D. and Again, you are listening to Black Hoodie, Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler. We're here
1: on the Fringe FM to start out with, and we'll be right back after this. <laughs>
2: everybody it's your good old friend tippy patson here from the the league of extraordinary gents and uh today i have a special message for you uh, i'm trying to petition uh to get into the ears of uh nfl quarterback aaron Rodgers. you see uh i i got thinking recently and y'all remember how justin bieber had that really cool shirtless pastor that was always like hanging out with him and like vanquishing his spiritual foes and and you know and to, so to aaron rogers i won't be that for you you know i could be your hot young shirtless pastor but like not in a gay way but like in a in like a like a spiritual rambo sort of way yeah and uh and because i understand that you know some time back you you, you done took some ayahuasca in peru and it kind of messed your game up uh because you met mother ayahuasca but you also met the hat man aaron rogers and and he's been done scaring you on the football field you know i got some quotes here uh like uh aaron rogers y- you were done saying like he will sometimes appear in the distance usually veiled by darkness holding the corpse of a dead rabbit and sometimes a blade I just kept throwing the ball to the hat man, and he was always wide open, floating high above the rest of the players, and it was so scary, I just had to do it. And you know, teammates done been quoting you, saying that uh, you got lights flickering on and off in the, in, in, in the locker rooms, and you, you done scared to be alone out there. So please, Aaron, I beg you, let me tippy-pats and help you out there, buddy. I could show you the Ford's way, uh, I could get your wrestling gators out to here in the Everglades, you know, and we'll get you throwing a tight spiral to that uh, that hat man and uh, and, and, for, and, and dang on no time, buddy. So come on, Aaron Rodgers, let Tippy Patson be your spiritual mentor, and you know that's it for now, folks. Help me get help me get in the ear of good old Aaron. All right, take it easy.
1: Hello there, everybody. Uh... You by Adobe is Jefferson Tillamookslinger. Uh, that's my code name around here. I also go by Steve Buscemi and a whole lot of other things. Uh, it recently... You know, I, I recently caught a little bit of flack because I was really high, and, uh, I called it to uh, Joseph Rupert's Lighting the Void uh, radio station asking for laundromat and drug money. Um and since then many people have said that uh um i maybe should not if i'm doing that maybe i should not be spending so much money on drugs even though i explained to them that when you ship yourselves overseas and back in a crate you need drugs to do to pass the time well uh i am i'm sober now and a little bit skinnier and it's all thanks to tippy patson's rainbow body weight loss program uh, it's a fantastic product that doesn't even require portion control or calorie counting All you do is smoke this Colombian cocaine paste named basuco uh, Which is basically a cocaine mix with uh, boda oil and brick dust But if you smoke enough of this stuff you achieve a rainbow body state of existence And you sweat a lot of it off and uh, it works like a charm and I'm living proof Jefferson T, baby, so sign up today um because uh uh you know the sober living is the way to go and i understand you know i'm sorry to joseph rupert i understand you know i'm sorry to joseph rupert for calling in um and you know you got your new and improved fresh clean so fresh and so clean jefferson t all right uh you, you cats take it easy out there Greetings, bro-tendo, it is I, Muscle Tornado, and, you know, I've got some news that makes my heart a bit heavy. Uh, you know, um, Hulk, Hulkster, give me strength. Um, you know, firstly, you may have heard that our friend Bayou Jones went missing overseas, and then our our cosmic ghost pirate has been uh, accidentally recently stuck into this heavy wind-up television set. Uh, And our friend Silverback Commando recently ran out of LSD after a years-long bender and uh, has fallen into an existential crisis in his sobriety. Well, Silverback seems to have hitchhiked out of here. He's gone. And this morning I accidentally changed the channel on this shitty wind-up television set. And now I can't find my cosmic ghost pirate anywhere. And on top of that... Uh, as some of you may know, I've lost my hand and my eye lately, so I have a pretty sweet hook and eye patch, but I'm tired of everything being taken away from me, Broseph. Hulkster, give me strength. Vin D for life, baby. Come on. We, uh, what do I need to do? Um, you know, just maybe, uh, maybe I really am transforming into a pirate, um, but... You know, whatever. Something's gotta give, right? Um, in the meantime, I'm just, uh, just gonna keep, you know, I, I've, I've got plenty of pixie sticks, so, I... <laughs> oh, god, well, let's we'll just cross, you know, cross the bridges as we get there, right? oh. <laughs> Ooh, muscle tornado is over and out.
0: About the alchemy of the soul animus and anima and as i mentioned before the break this is going to be a little bit of a slant towards um men investigating their anima that's what i can relate to so i've been most inspired by that is the the example that i can give best and some of the ratios might change but the 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 gender is like the end point of a person's individual experience here meaning that the system the 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 experience is some is the takeaway here it's not the genderification of it so investigating the anima is something that Firstly, before, you know, as the cliche goes, it's always darkest before the dawn. It is that alchemical process that you have to start with the impurities and transmute. And as I described before the break in this esoteric collective consciousness sort of sense, we are reconciling aspects of our personality to have a more complete personality, something that has integrated all aspects of our individual existence so that we may be better people for ourselves and those around us. And there's a lot of purging that has to be done with that. And there's a lot of, you have to clear the lines. There's a lot of static when you're trying to get in touch with these, these archetypes of your psyche that are expressing deep mechanisms of your existence. And so here from Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, the book, the last book Jung wrote before he died, he talks a bit about his experiences with his anima throughout his life. And so I'll read a bit. First, it was the negative aspect of the anima that most impressed me. I felt a little awed by her. It was like the feeling of an invisible presence in the room. Then a new idea came to me. In putting down all this material for analysis, I was in effect writing letters to the anima, that is, to a part of myself with a different viewpoint from my conscious one. I got remarks of an unusual and unexpected character. I was like a patient in analysis with a ghost and a woman. I wonder if, if uh, in translation that meant to be ghost of a woman. I know that's actually in the book ghost and a woman in the official English version, but I still wonder. Anyway, every evening, I wrote very conscientiously, for I thought if I did not write, there would be no way for the anima to get at my fantasies. Also, by writing them out, I gave her no choice to twist them into intrigues. There's a tremendous difference between intending to tell something and actually telling it. In order to be as honest as possible with myself, I wrote everything down very carefully, Following the old Greek maxim, give away all thou hast, then uh, then shalt thou receive. Often, as I was writing, I would have peculiar reactions that threw me off. Slowly, I learned to distinguish between myself and the interruption. When something emotionally vulgar or banal came up, I would say to myself, it is perfectly true that I have thought and felt this way at some time or another, but I don't have to think and feel that way now. I need not accept this banality of mine in perpetuity. That is an unnecessary humiliation. The essential thing is to differentiate oneself from the unconscious contents by personifying them, and at that same time, uh, to bring them into relationship with consciousness. That is the technique for stripping them of their power. It is not too difficult to personify them, as they always possess a certain degree of autonomy a separate identity of their own. The autonomy is a most uncomfortable thing to reconcile oneself to, and yet the very fact that the unconscious presents itself in that way gives us the best means of handling it. What the anima said seemed to me full of deep cunning. If I had taken these fantasies of the unconscious as art, they would have carried no more conviction than visual perceptions as if I were watching a movie. I would have felt no moral obligation toward them, the anima might have easily seduced me into believing that I was, misun- was a misunderstood artist and that my so-called artistic nature gave me the right to neglect reality. If I had followed her voice, should, uh, she would in all probability have said to me one day, do you imagine that the nonsense you're engaging in is really art? Not a bit. Because he had um, gone along with his neurotic tendencies instead of transmuting them. Uh, Thus, the insinuations of the anima, the mouthpiece of the unconscious, can utterly destroy a man. In the final analysis, the decisive factor is always consciousness, which can understand the manifestations of the unconscious and take up a position toward them. Reminds me of that Viktor Frankl quote, um, our last freedom is the ability to choose our, our stance in any given situation. But the anima has a positive aspect as well. Of course it is she who communicates the images of the unconscious to the conscious mind and that is what i chiefly valued her for for decades i always turned to the anima when i felt that my emotional behavior was disturbed and that something had been constellated in the unconscious i would then ask the anima now what are you up to what do you see i should like to know after some resistance she regularly produced an image As soon as the image was there, the unrest or the sense of oppression vanished. The whole energy of these emotions was transformed into interest in and curiosity about the image. I would speak with the anima about the images she communicated to me, for I had to try to understand them as best I could, just like a dream. Today, I no longer need these conversations with the anima, for I no longer have such emotions. But if I did have them, I would deal with them in the same way. Today, I am directly conscious of the anima's ideas because I've learned to accept the contents of the unconscious and to understand them. I know how I must behave toward the inner images. I can read their meaning directly uh, from my dreams and therefore no longer need a mediator to communicate them. I wrote these fantasies down first in the Black Book. Callback slash tie-in. Go check out the episode on the Black Book. Uh, Later, I transferred them to the Red Book, also in the same episode. Uh, which I also embellished with drawings. It contains most of my mandala drawings. In the red book, I tried an aesthetic elaboration of my fantasies, but never finished it. I became aware that I had not yet found the right language, that I still had to translate it into something else. Therefore, I gave up this aestheticizing tendency in good time in favor of a rigorous process of understanding. I saw that um, so much fantasy needed firm ground underfoot, and that I must first return wholly to reality. For me, reality meant scientific comprehension. I had to draw concrete conclusions from the insights the unconscious had given me, and that task was to become a life work. It is, of course, ironic that I, a psychiatrist, should almost uh, at every step of my experiment have run into the same psychic material which is the stuff of psychosis and is found in the insane. This is the fund of unconscious images which fatally confuse the mental patient. But it is also the matrix of a mythopoic imagination which has vanished from our rational age. Though such imagination is present everywhere, it is both tabooed and dreaded so that it even appears a risky experiment or a questionable adventure to entrust oneself to the uncertain path that leads into the depths of the unconscious. It is considered a path of error, of equivocation, and misunderstanding. I am reminded of Goethe's words, now let me dare to open wide, past which men's steps have ever-flinching trod. The anima of a man has a strongly historical character, As a personification of the unconscious, she goes back into prehistory and embodies the contents of the past. She provides the individual with those elements that he ought to know about his prehistory. To the individual, the anima is all life that has been in the past and is still alive in him. In comparison to her, I have always felt myself to be a barbarian who really has no history, like a creature uh, just sprung out of nothingness, which neither has a past nor a future. In the course of my confrontation with the anima, I had actually had a brush with those perils which I saw represented in the mosaics. I had come close to drowning. The same thing happened to me as to Peter, who cried for help and was rescued by Jesus. What had been the fate of Pharaoh's army could have been mine. Like Peter and like Naaman, I came away unscathed in the integration of the unconscious contents made an essential contribution to the completion of my personality. What happens within oneself when one integrates previously unconscious contents within the consciousness is something which can scarcely be described in words. It can only be experienced. It is a subjective affair quite beyond discussion. We have a particular feeling about ourselves, about the way we are, and that is a very fact... Um, which it is neither possible nor meaningful to doubt. Similarly, we convey a particular feeling to others, and that too is a fact that cannot be doubted. So far as we know, there is no higher authority which could eliminate the probable discrepancies between all the oppressions, impressions, and opinions. Whether a change has taken place as the result of integration and what the nature of that change is remains a matter of subjective conviction. Okay. We've heard enough from Jung for this episode. Suffice it to say, as far as I understand it, Jung was a good husband and family man, uh, except for the fact that he did cheat on his wife. So can't excuse that. Um, Clearly, he was working through some turmoil and had uh, a a biting sort of anima relationship with his anima for, for some time. So was, by his own admittance, not a perfect person. That'd be foolish for him to suggest such a thing. But I did mention Dante, Philip K. Dick, and uh, Goethe. So now that we've gone through, we talked about uh, some some of the mechanics that Jung described. We talked about some of um, the work that he did in his life, navigating through and uh, you know sussing out some of those mechanics. I want to look at uh, some other characters that I have brought up all throughout this show. And a lot of my inspiration from these characters comes from my familiarity with their struggles in these cases. And if you want more on that, I've talked about that in other episodes a bit like um um sleep paralysis and siren songs among other things, but primarily you can find if you're interested in Jung's dialogue and and like experimental, uh, probing of his anima in this animated sort of way, no pun intended there. Um, that is a lot of what my book Dive Manual is about. So you could uh, you could get that if you're interested in how that translates even further. You know, experimentally in the modern day it's not really an advice book so much as it is uh, a data driven book and you know a bit a little bit of my story for context and you can take that however you will but in terms of um these stories of these other people here um, it's probably well known to most people listening you know the 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 biggest motif in the divine comedy is dante traverses the levels of heaven and hell which uh, can be are synonymous with the the sephiroth the circles on the trees of life and death he is guided by the divine feminine the most purified relationship with his anima his muse beatrice this is the angel that eventually gets him into uh the the presence of god and you know where where Dante, you know, peers into the mind of God and sees the celestial rose of the cosmos and and so forth. Um, so and I just find this story interesting. I've got, you know, I'll show notes in the description. I've got some bits to read about the 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 backstory of Dante's real life fascination with this woman. And it's kind of crazy, you know, in a way, you could say that Dante simped for Beatrice. But it's I, I think it's a it's like the, a bit more classy than that. Um if he was always sending her, you know, if he was more like a ducky in Sixteen Candles, um, it would be simping. But I mean, to give Dante credit, I mean he had like he he had a a huge fascination with this woman that he never even had a relationship with, but it's pretty clear that he understood the the poetic nature of it. Now, that being said, it was clearly a fascination. Um, and it's mind blowing to think, or to wonder what his actual wife thought of this. He had a wife. She eventually died before him, I believe. And then he was like exiled, which is when he wrote the Divine Comedy. And all that said, it doesn't seem very classy for Dante to be writing this esoteric, transcendental poetry where. This uh, this woman that's not his wife is basically the conduit for him to experience God. Seems a bit heavy, but I mean, it is, uh, it's some classical esoteric literature to this day. And while well, I'm not an expert on what was going on in the mind of Dante and all the, the things he read, it would be cool to know all of his inspirations. He clearly had some sort of understanding of the mystery traditions um, because he was weaving all of that into the Divine Comedy on top of just slamming a lot of uh, politicians and artists from his era uh, that he he put in various levels of hell. Um, there was a lot of genuine esoteric symbolism, you know, pregnant with with insight. Um, and 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 there's a reason that uh, it's still philosophized and discussed to this day. But that said, I just wanted to say it. it it's it's pretty strange. It's very striking how uh, like if it wasn't, and and we know that these people were real, but we also don't know how much of this is telephone game. Scholars have long debated whether the historical Beatrice is intended to be identified with either or both of the Beatrices uh, found in Dante's writings, but basically it's widely, just not completely unanimously accepted by scholars that Dante was referencing one poetic angel Beatrice that was inspired by the Beatrice he knew in real life. Um, But I, I guess they're, you know, it was so long ago, there is still some room for, for consideration of other ideas. But Beatrice was Dante's true love. In his work of Vita Nova, Dante reveals that he saw Beatrice for the first time when his father took him to the Portinari house for a Mayday parade, which is Beatrice's last name. They were children. He was nine years old and she was eight. Uh, Dante was instantly smitten and never forgot her after his meeting, even though he married another woman, Gemma Donati, in 1285, uh, with whom he had three sons and one daughter. Sorry, I, <laughs> I just can't help but like give it a, a flare. According to tradition, Dante and Beatrice were also neighbors outside the walls of Florence, near the hill of uh, Afiasol, where the Portinari and Alighieri families had two neighboring summer villas. It is plausible that Dante and Beatrice met each other as children there and had recurring meetings. He would meet her again nine years later in an unexpected fashion. Beatrice is walking along dressed in white and accompanied by two older women. She turned and greeted him. Uh, Dante remembered the episode well and uh, remarked that he ran away without saying a word. Her salutation filled him with such joy that he retreated to his room to think about her. Uh, In so doing, he fell asleep and had a dream that would become the subject of the first sonnet in La La Vita Nuova. Afterward, there were only two other short meetings between the two. One in the church, in it would just say a church, I'm not going to pronounce that, um, and one at a wedding feast. After Beatrice's death, Dante withdrew into intense study and began composing poems dedicated to her memory. The collection of these poems, because, I guess, context, she died fairly young. I don't remember the exact age, but Dante still had decades left to live, essentially. Uh, The collection of these poems, along with others he had previously written in his journal in awe of Beatrice, became the La Vita Nuova, a prose work interlaced with lyrics. Dante describes his meetings with her, praises her beauty and goodness, describes his own intense reaction to her kindness or lack thereof, tells of events in both their lives, and explains the nature of his feelings for her. La Vita Nuova also relates of the day when Dante was informed of her death and contains several anguished poems written after that event. In the final chapter, Dante vows to write nothing further of Beatrice until he writes, quote, concerning her what hath not been written of any woman and that was the divine comedy and i say he hit the mark there he did do something pretty unprecedented it was archetypal so it wasn't like brand new but the the expression you know there's a reason it's so historical um and i've read through the uh these various works and in context with jung's considerations of his work with the anima it's very interesting very interesting, and it's very beautiful when you read the poetry, um it all becomes even more curious because there's truly no ill intention. it's it's bizarre how pure it is, almost. And I don't mean bizarre in a bad way. I guess it's just um very rare it, but it but it's wholesome. dante comes across like a fumbling child. Um, In the presence of Beatrice, like, if anything, he comes across, um, yeah, like, underdeveloped, like he just falls back to 12-year-old brain when he thinks of her, and that takes so much religiosity and philosophizing and and essentially uh, represents some sort of deep, intrinsic communication that he is slowly refining with his anima. Now Philip K. Dick is another one. Um, in the episode with Miguel Connor, we talked about him a bit. Um, I encourage you to go check that episode out. But as some further considerations, um, it is worth noting that Philip K. Dick has a book out there, which is a collection of poems and essays and philosophizing, called "The Dark Haired Girl." This is something, you know, in the same vein as. La vita nuova essentially. And there's some very beautiful um there's some very beautiful bits in it. I haven't read the whole thing. I've heard of it before and then I kind of forgot about it and then I I I remembered it I stumbled across it again in the notes of this show. So it's one I definitely have to get into more. But I read um some bits of it from a PDF. I have a quote here that I really like that I'm I'm going to read here. Tessa, one of his wives. Not like he was a polygamist. He was just divorced. Uh, And Tessa and I started out with conflicting realities, uh, but found that when each of us reality tested the others, it collapsed. But now, instead of mutually destroying each other's realities, we are shaping a joint one between us. If two people dream the same dream, it ceases to be an illusion. The basic test that distinguishes reality from hallucination is the consensus gentium. That one um one other or several others see it too. This is the idios cosmos, the private dream contrasted to the shared dream of us all, the koinos cosmos. What is new in our time is that we are beginning to see the plastic, trembling quality of the koinos cosmos. So an interesting glimpse into some of uh Philip K. Dick's romantic relationships and how he expressed some of that work done with his own anima. But again, if you want uh further details, you could go listen to that whole episode. We talk about Miguel and I um a lot of that uh quest for his feminine energy, the anima, is surely inspired in part by his uh traumatic separation he had a a twin in the womb that died i think her name was jane and he married young uh, philip k dick had multiple wives and the whole um his whole work uh the exegesis of philip k dick is essentially his very own version of jung's black books and has a lot to do not not exclusively but a lot to do with his own work of uncovering Philip K. Dick, as you may recall, had a lot of wild, mystical, transcendental sort of experiences, um, that he basically related to the communications with his anima. Lots of ground covered in this episode. Like I already said, this is an introduction to some vastly esoteric concepts. Um, I do not have all the answers for you here. I am just showing you some of the territory that I've mapped out a little bit, and you can take it how you will. As the last check mark to put on our to do list here, I wanted to share a little bit of Goethe's story. You know, the, uh, the German philosopher, uh, alchemist, a botanist, and poet that wrote the best rendition of Faust as we know it. I'm not going to explain Faust again. I've done that so many times. And yes, um, I've heard people pronounce it Gautier, Gaete. Um, It seems like, you know, and in and, and the episode about him, um, I pronounced it Gautier. The closest you could get is Goethe, like that. That's how the Germans say it. So I, I should probably roll with that. So it's Goethe, but, you know, I've. I've it's kind of wild how many different ways I've heard the name said, by scholastic people, not just like, you know, Joe blows on the street. So anyway, I'm going to say Goethe from now on. Goethe's first love was of a very harmless character. It was in the year 1764 when he was a mere boy of 15, and his adored one, Gretchen, was a few years his senior, probably 17 or 18 years old. Um, When she had rebuked him for entering into the silly jokes of his friends, he was so infatuated with the lovely girl that he wanted to embrace her, but she stood aloof. Don't kiss me, she said. That is vulgar, but love me if you can. Gretchen seems to have been an orphan, presumably the daughter of an innkeeper, um, and was brought up in the house of relatives. Her family name is not known. The young Goethe became acquainted at her home with a man whom he recommended to his father for a position. And when the youth's protege turned out to be a scoundrel, an investigation ensued in which Gretchen spoke of the young Wolfgang as a quote unquote boy, which offended him greatly. The following comment in Truth and Fiction describes Goethe's uh, sentiments at the disillusionment of his first affection At last, I could contain myself no more and asked what had become of Gretchen, for whom I, once for all, confessed the strongest attachment. My friend shook his head and smiled. Set your mind at rest, replied he. That girl has passed her examination very well and has borne honorable testimony to that effect. They could discover nothing in her but what was good and amiable. She even won the favor of those who questioned her and who could not refuse to grant her desire to remove from the city. Even what she had confessed regarding you, my friend, does her honor. I have read her deposition in the secret report myself and I've seen her signature. Um, it goes on a bit more, but essentially, when asked about her relationship with the young Gerta, she expressed that they were intimate, but she saw him as basically like um not a real man yet and was more of a, you know, like summer loving. And that, Deeply hurt young Goethe, because she said that like apparently as part of like a court too, so that's that's kind of a slam that sucks, but I mean, hey, everyone's entitled to their opinion uh so Uh, Goethe goes on to write, my friend still went on making Gretchen speak like a governess, but for some time I had ceased to listen to him. I was terribly affronted that she had set me down in the reports as a child, and I at once believed myself cured of all passion for her. I even hastily assured my friend that was all over now. I also spoke no more of her, named her no more, but I could not leave off the bad habit of thinking about her and of recalling her face, her air, her demeanor. Though now, to be sure, all appearance to me in quite another light, or all appeared to me in quite another light. I felt it intolerable that a girl, um, at the most only a couple of years older than I, should regard me as a child, <laughs> while I had imagined that I had passed with her for a very sensible and clever youth. And of course, um, a reminiscence of Gretchen is preserved in Go- uh, Goethe's Faust. Insofar as the heroine bears her name. So another interesting piece of history on young Goethe's uh, budding investigation of his own anima. So again, I'm just leaving little trails of uh, breadcrumbs because the idea of the investigation of the anima and animus and the union of opposites, the alchemy of the soul, is so fucking esoteric. Um that it's it's a difficult thing to fully wrap your head around in the esoteric sense, um, in the like comparative religious sense, to be more specific, uh, when you try to bust that down into at least practical starting points in a psychological sense. It gets very heady. You know, it's like riding a bike once you understand it, you get what's happening here, but these are not concepts that we're very used to dealing with in the regular world. You know, none of this has to do with balancing a checkbook or paying your bills. So hard to kind of uh, get uh, catch your stride sometimes. So this is something that honestly requires just a little bit of legwork, wrapping your head around it first. And it's not to be galaxy brain here. Like I said, these are just kind of concepts that we're not really used to engaging with very often. And to reiterate what I have already said, don't don't get bogged down in the genderification of these things. Focus on the the reconciliation of the uh, the the conscious and unconscious, the individual and the collective dreams. The the yin and the yang death and life positive and negative um spirit and soul action and nurture nurturing whatever um all of these things are as jung put the doorways to states of existence laws of existence if you will that have ramifications that go far beyond us they just happen to also extend to us and manifest themselves in certain ways and the 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 study of this sacred alchemical marriage and the esoteric nature of the the masculine and feminine the anima and animus is something that every person will have to reconcile at one point or another and you don't you don't even have to use those terms But this process is something that everyone will go through throughout their lives, whether it's more, you know, it doesn't have to be conscious. It could be a very unconscious thing that's expressed through art and a variety of different things. And you just get the inklings of it. You get the process without the full articulation. Or you could go full on Jung or Philip K. Dick or Goethe or Dante. And really sink your teeth into the alchemical process of it all. And, you know, again, we'll be getting more uh, lady guests on in the future. So hopefully we can um, explore some feminine parallels here, you know, look into how, uh, you know, the opposite end, you know, what the, what the, you know, how, who are some female equivalents that we can find to some of the gentlemen that we talked about today. I'm sure they're out there. I don't have as much experience with that. Perhaps that's something even I will be looking into in the future for some solo episodes. But that's it for now. I hope, uh, you know, this wasn't considered too divisive. Um, I certainly, you know, again, if uh, if you had any issues with this, I guess just chalk it up to ignorance, because I really don't have any qualms with anyone, and I think that this is a conversation that is applicable to everyone. So that's it for now. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Don't forget you can check out some merch or get some books. Don't forget uh, this is Black Metal Anthony. I'm your host, Anthony Tyler. Smoke weed and God bless.